Hello, KafaruCast listeners. It's Thursday morning, and uh, we've got our good friend Harold Farnbrook, who's getting ready to take off to Alaska with us today. What's up? Oh, just uh, um, Aaron's kind of got me lined up with, uh, with a pack frame. The outfitter I work for, Jonas Alaskan Outfitters, is uh, going to be doing moose for the first time this year, so um going to be putting this thing to, to well it's already been proven which is why i'm getting it but um uh i'll be using it this time yeah we, it worked out good frank and i were getting ready to do kind of a podcast sort of a a q a on uh maybe misinformation about backpack hunting and archery and then harold came to get his pack frame and some of the info we're going to talk about is kind of fitting to have uh, Harold in here because you've been backpack hunting since Christ was a kid. How old are you now, Harold? Uh, 58. Well, how long are you? So, <laughs> so that's when Jesus you, was born. Yeah. So you backpacked with Jesus. So yeah, how, long have you, how long have you been backpack hunting? Uh, like I said, I mean, um, Epic Outdoors did an a, a interview with me and kind of what got me into it was um, uh, my dad, you know, hunting with my dad at 14 years old. He'd be driving down the interstate and I'd be looking up in these mountains, you know, off that interstate going, man, that's got to be good up there. That's got to be good up there. Well, he called my bluff one time and I said, you know, just let me, just drop me off here and you can pick me up, you know, in four days from now. So here I was 14 years old, uh, haven't had my driver's license yet. And my dad dropped me off and knowing my dad, I know he's not going to pick me up for four more days. Where he dropped me off was, uh, Officer's Gulch over there by Leadville. <laughs> yeah, I know where you're at. And he was picking me up over there in Vail. So uh, it was a lot further than what I had planned out. But, um, you know, he drove off. I'm sitting there, up in my throat, you know, tears running down my cheeks going, now I'm homesick. You know, what the heck did I just get myself into? But that first night that I spent out there, I thought, knew this is what I was made to do. And I, I've never had a moment like that before as regards to wishing I didn't do it. Now I'm always, why can't I get up there more? So from that day on, I have been living out, I wouldn't say living out of a backpack, but I've, I, I really enjoy that kind of deal, getting out in the middle of nowhere, knowing I'm the only one there, seeing animals way before season, putting my initials on an animal that I want to harvest uh, two months before anybody even knows they're out there. So um, I... I get much more out of a backpack than most. I starts way before season starts with me, and and I'm you know always somebody you can call to uh, help pack out animals, so it lasts way after season's over with for me. So it goes almost year round. Yeah. Well, that this will be good because you've got Frank. You're what thirty now? Thirty. Yeah. Frank. So we got kind of three different generations here. We got Frank's thirty. I'm forty two. You're fifty eight. So a little bit of everything, in the sense of. Um, Frank, you started with, you had the cell phone and the internet. I did not. And then, but it was just getting going. And then obviously you started back Be- before, uh, model T. No, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you did have, uh, probably oh. those camp trails frames and, and, uh, shit like that. I would guess. Yeah. The camp trail. I mean, out of camp more little, the little magazine they have and they put out, I got a camp more <laughs> camouflage backpack before that. It was Montgomery Wars. It was my very first backpack and it was a red and white and blue one. Uh, that wouldn't be politically correct these days, but it was uh, patriotic <laughs> and, uh, um, that this was going to be pack. a good podcast. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to cover, uh, some archery stuff, uh, just from some questions that are kind of goofy questions I've got that I think would be good to cover footwear, optics, backpack stuff. So while we're on a roll, let's just cover out of the gate. There was a recent thread on Kafaru insiders of what should your pack weigh without water and weapon 
for a 10-day hunt. Now, to kind of give you a, a kickoff, I asked Harold this question when he walked in, and Harold's like, I've been doing this a long time, so, you know, 10, 12-day hunt, my pack's pretty lightweight, you said 60 pounds. 60, max 65, yeah. Well... That's pretty fucking heavy for what it was on Kafaro Insider. So one thing I will say, and there's nothing against anyone that posted, everybody's just trying to help out. If you haven't actually done a, we're going to just say 10 to 14 day backpack hunt, because that, that's more the outer limits of what most people do these days. You're really just theorizing of the shit you're stuffing in it in, in your house, because uh, a lot of things change when you're in well, you know, when you're getting your ass kicked in the backcountry, a lot of things change. Mm-hmm. Like your ideas change. Mine did the first time I went. And so you're saying 10 to 14 days, 60 to 70 pounds. Yeah. Okay. Frank? I'm going to be right there with him. That, and like Harold was saying, food, food weighs a lot. You were saying the same thing. I like to eat a lot when I'm back there and I don't want to, I don't want to be hungry. And I think a lot of guys use the, this, uh, the excuse that they want to lose weight, I guess. Yeah. I want to have as much energy as I can, so I'm eating as much as I can. And if you're a, a fatty bin baddie, you do have some stored energy where you can, because you can last two to three weeks without eating and not die, but that's not the goal is to not die. The goal is right. to be successful as a as a hunter. So realistically, your sleep system, uh, we're kind of kind of bounce this around the table is going to be five to six pounds for a solo person, meaning sleeping pad, bag, and shelter for a good shelter for for moderate to rough conditions. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of basing off because I'm in guiding in Alaska. So what I would do for myself by myself is a little different. Um, right now, I got to provide for a client. So I'm carrying a two-man tent. They're not really um, – and we use uh, – um, so uh, the, the the hunter himself, he don't have to carry a tent. The hunter himself, he's just responsible for his sleeping bag and his food. I carry everything else, the stove, the sleep ba- the, the, the tent, the tarps, um, the spotting scope, the tripods, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I got every little square inch of my backpack used up. And, um, uh, but if I was hunting with myself, by myself, then I'm sleeping under a tarp. Then I'm using a different kind of sleep system because... Um, um, I'm, I'm theoretically wanting to stuff my backpack and have room in there for an animal. Right. Um, so I keep it, I keep it pretty light. And I'd say in that situation, I'm probably even at that on a 10 to 14 day hunt, I'm going to be in that 50 to 60 rather than 60 to 70. Right. And so with your sleep system though, for, for example, when I say that five to six pounds, you're looking at. Uh, a lightweight, good sleeping bag is two pounds. That's a down bag. A synthetic's going to be closer to three. That's for a 15 to 20 degree, you mm-hmm. know, and that's super high end. Your pad is going to be, that the lightest ones you get now are about 12 ounces and heavier ones are 16 to 18 ounces. So a pound on average for a pad. So you're at three to three and a half for the bag and the pad. And then your shelter the lightest you're going to get is probably a pound and a half for a tarp and stakes, mm-hmm. roughly. So you're at five pounds there for an extremely lightweight system, and then you get a tent in the mix or whatever, you're closer to six. Um, so I try to five to six pounds is a, a, about what you're going to look at. So if you're running, what bag do you run? Um, I got uh, the um, 
Kuyu bag that uh, is the synthetic bag. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, I say Frank's thinking the same thing. You used a K word. Frank, <laughs> you've got our bag and then Western Mountaineering. Yeah, I got a Western Mountaineering Mighty Light, I think is what it was. And, uh, or wait, Megalite. Megalite. Megalite yeah. and the, uh, yeah, the Slick 20, or, you know, sometimes we use our quill or the body bag. Yeah, so just we depending. get various amounts. So I think we can all agree somewhere between... I don't know, four and a half, five to six, six and a half pounds, depending upon the extreme conditions you're going in. Yeah. It, what's the brand of rock? Uh, um, you just said it, your, your, your bag, one of your bags. Western, Western Mountaineering. Mountaineering. Yeah. Not Western Mountaineering. Hard Rock? Hard Rock. Um, no, not Hard Rock. Uh, Anyways, that's what I use. What I can't come up with the name of it. And when it was Mountain Hardware, Mountain Hardware. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that forever. It was a synthetic bag. It just it didn't weigh a lot, but it took a lot of room in the backpack. Um, as a gratuity, one of the clients I had about three years ago gave me his Kafaro sleeping bag. So it was, uh, and it's it's lighter and compressible, but. Um, yeah, I don't like using the K word either, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> and I'll put that on the air. The, uh, no, it's no big deal. And so now for a, a stove, right, for a backpacking stove, you're looking at um, about the lightest. I've got about the lightest with that titanium ever new 10, to a, 10 ounces to a pound. Um, would you say that's pretty close? Absolutely. So right there, you're, we're going to round up, say, seven pounds right now with that. Now you're going to have headlamps, Delorme inreaches, game bags, some knives, shit like that. And so, you know, by the time that's all said and done, you're probably closer to 14 to 16 pounds, um, you know, maybe working on even 20 with everything but food with your clothing, crap like that. Um, now, if you're, let's say, at 20 pounds before you have food, most people are going to eat two pounds a day at a minimum um, of food. So that's if you got 14 days uh, of food, if you're at two pounds a day, that's 28 fucking pounds. Pretty simple. Right. Um, so and the space to put it in. And, yeah. And the space to put it in. So and, and again, when you're looking at, a, you know, your your backpack a spotter. We carry 95s. What do you carry usually? 85. 85s at Swaro. Yeah. So four to five pounds for the, the optics. And then you've got a tripod and that's going to be probably three mm -hmm. somewhere in there. So you're at nine, um, seven to nine with, with optics, uh, with your binoculars and, or excuse me, with your spotting scope and your tripod. And then there's also, there's always the little incidentals. I would say like for me, Copenhagen. I got to have a can a day. That's going to add some weight, coffee, right? Um, Lube. <laughs> depending yeah. upon the situation, <laughs> yeah. lube. Uh, actually, this time, though, not lube, but uh, sunscreen, because we were so, you know, we yeah, use it yeah, for both. it's important to have your stuff My be yeah, multi-purpose. Never be sunburnt. Yeah, that yeah. thing's got sunscreen on it you all use the time. it for sunscreen or you use it for whatever. So, yeah, so being realistic with pack weight, um, you you know, you're you're looking at pretty quickly at, at, at the lightest weight you possibly could go, I think, for a 10-day hunt, being realistic, is, is going to be 55 pounds and probably closer to 60 um, with you're running a spotting scope and tripod uh, and things of that nature. I think people can definitely get it down a lot lighter. Like uh, you were saying, people had it down at like 27 pounds. But the thing for me is like there's a, a lot of ultralight gear out there. But the biggest thing for me is durability and something that I can rely on. Yeah. So, you know, there's like a, that quilt, Western Mountaineering makes like a super ultralight 
down quilt and things like paper thin you fucking rub it up against a rock and it's shredded so i think having something that's going to last especially probably for harold more than anybody like a guide you want something that's going to last you the entire season those guys the guys i bear hunt with you hunt there is nothing they have that's lightweight because they beat the shit out of all of it especially with horses Mm -hmm. that get involved in those so you certainly can go lighter than that I just think that it's not realistic for someone starting out to go to the extreme level because you already, if you're just starting out, don't have the field craft and woodsmanship to where if something does go sideways that you can stick it out, right, and and maybe go the the distance. I mean, what would you say number one failures are where you're at in gear? Probably. what you've seen? um, Footwear. Yeah. What would you say the number one failure company footwear would be you got one that sticks out more than another um kendrick's fuck that's it <laughs> dude i had p- soles falling off and shit um with kenetrek's bad 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 like not good and i'm sure i think jim wingen's a guy that owns do you guys uh do you guys have like a when you send a client up there, a client's going up to there, do you tell them like a, a list of don't different types? Don't bring this shit. <laughs> don't bring fucking, don't bring Danners. Don't bring Kenetrex. Yeah. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, the clients uh, um, that um, already know that I'm going to be their guide, I get phone calls. Plus I'm on Jonah's referral list because not only have I guided for him and it was just me and Jonah in the beginning, um, I'm also was a client. You know, I've been a client multiple times because I'm a non-resident. I got to have a guide to be able to hunt sheep and bear and that kind of stuff myself. So I can get it from both aspects in regards to referral. I work for him and I was a client. So I do get that and I do tell them. I'm like, if, you know, if 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 they give the, the phone call, then I, I tell them, you know, the, the packs, the, the footwear, the socks, the merino wool, the rain gear and things like that are all um, 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 things that I've – when you talk about the the ultra light stuff, they come out. I've tested it all. I mean, I've had I've been savvy to be able to try to market a few things or just test a few things for some people. Thought they had a good idea, and they weren't good ideas because their sole emphasis was weight and thought that was going to put them on the map. But once I got up there, that weight don't mean jack if it didn't work or it didn't last. Yeah. So I have no options. Jonah lands me up there sometimes. You know, after a ten day hunt, he picks up that client, leaves me there, takes the client back to the camp, pick take, flies comes back, gets me, moves me another 30 miles away to the next group of sheep and then flies me in the next client. So I never get back. So it's a, it has to last. So maybe mine being between that 60, 70 pound is because I got, you know, thicker air mattress, you know, made by Big Agnes. Um, and it's just, but God, it's been bulletproof. I mean, so I, uh, if you can talk to somebody like Aaron or Frank or myself on stuff that we've tested and had been able to be able to do, didn't have to pay for it. They just want to know our opinion. And then you start seeing that stuff marketed on some of the social media stuff. It's like, man, I already know that don't work. Yeah. And uh, when you got people out there sending twenty thousand dollars for a sheep hunt, and they want to, they're not going, they're not holding anything back. They trust what's out there, and not not everything that's out there. Just make sure the person that's giving you that information isn't kind of being paid on the side to say those kind of things. You want to talk to people that are actually doing it. Aaron has the pictures and the and experience to back it up. Frank does. I do. And we're not going to be the lightest, but we're going to be. We're, we're not, not coming we're not, back early. Yeah, we're not. We're not coming back <laughs> early, and we're not going to be uncomfortable while we're out there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think a lot of people sacrifice comfort for for weight. That's something I'm not willing to do. N- no, and not not very often do you ever hear he and I have a gear failure 
or we're hungry or, and I mean, one of the things we're banking on this year in the high country, the weather is going to be bad, right? It's mm-hmm. just. It's just the way it seems to be doing this year. Well, and I'm I'm pretty happy about it because he and I will outlast anyone when it comes to a suck fest where most people are going to push off the mountain. I almost guarantee most of those guys are going to push, push off the mountain. They don't have the gear to hold up to you extreme know, conditions. One thing I was thinking of is like when you pack a, a healthy amount of food is like I've been in situations where you're coming towards um, the last few days of what you planned on hunting. And it's nice having that extra food because you can – you can ration that last a bit of food off to make it last even even longer if needed. Yeah. yeah. So I've I've had to do that before as well. So I, I think if you skimp on your food, you can't do that. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. Like my first bighorn sheep I shot. This is back in uh, I think I shot it in '86. It was uh, um, I shot on the 19th day of my hunt. I had enough food up there for for two weeks. And I had, you know, I packed in the year, I mean, the, the week before season started, a stash and another drainage and that kind of stuff. So even though it wasn't all on my back, that's how many days of food I had. And I had to go from one drainage to another to go get it. So staying up there that extra four or five days, you know, I, did, I wasn't conserving at all that first week. But then the second week, I'm like, man, those sheep ain't being very cooperative. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's half a candy bar now and a half a candy bar later <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So 19 days later, I finally got the ram. And I was I was weak, but uh, I wasn't going to be crawling off that mountain. I lo- almost lost my job when I came back because I was supposed <laughs> to be back earlier than that. But it it was uh, um, if if I always felt if I can out if if I can out withstand a sheep, then um, I can out withstand any weather. Yeah, no, I I agree. And I, so before we get off uh, the the lines of that, just remember, people. Um, one of the differences, the biggest difference between five days and ten days of of pack weight is just food, really, mm-hmm. and and fuel. There's not much difference. I pack the same shit. I just have more food for the ten day hunt and maybe an extra fuel canister or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you're not if if you're going if if you're able to go and have been going extreme lightweight and you know what you're doing, then don't listen to this podcast. You're golden. If you're a newcomer, don't expect to go 10 days with anywhere remotely close to 30, 35 pounds in your pack because you just don't have the experience. Just accept the fact you're going to be hauling in 55, 60, 65 pounds of shit for a 10-day, a true 10-day backpack hunt. Not, I'm talking in on your back, and the whole time you're back, they're not coming back out. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll add this. I mean... Uh, I was a guest speaker at a couple of different places. Uh, one was the traditional bow hunters banquet. And what I told some of uh, and other other places is in regards to being people that always want to train, you know, train in the footwear you're going to be using, uh, use the backpack you're going to be carrying, uh, simulate whether it's a, a salt bag in the back or, or the actual gear you're going to be carrying, but to see how noisy it is, to see where you can kind of stuck stuff. So you kind of get used to where to look for it in your backpack and when you're scrambling and whatnot. But the main thing is, and I know a lot of, you know, maybe doctors and things like that won't agree with this or nutritionists, but in the real world, when you're up there in the middle of nowhere, like we're going doll sheep hunting this year, some years there's no water on top. So you use up all your water getting clear of the top. By the time you get up there, you have no more water. And then you got to walk all the way down where you came from to go get the water. So in, in, the, in the real world hunting where you're not going to give up, man, you got $20,000 into this hunt. And my job as a guide is to, is to get the most out of you that you didn't even think your mind or body was capable of. And that is training and working under not the best environment, not, not having being hydrated. So you have a gallon of water on your back and you're training for your trip. Well, try to do it a couple times without the water on your back because 
I'd say almost sometimes 30 to 40 percent of what we're doing, you are dehydrated. You need water, but it's not there. So you got to condition your body no more different than conditioning your feet and your mind to, man, I'm not going to I'm going to have to live off, you know, um, a pint of water today because I'm not going to spend three hours going back down there to get water. And by the time I get back up, I'm down only end up with a pint again. So you have to learn how to just condition your body to not having the best tools available or the best fuel available. The only time, um, oh, you know, I don't ever have chapped lips, right? I get it because I'm so hydrated. Mm -hmm. Every backpack on, I get chapped lips because my water intake has gone from 120 to 140 ounces a day to 40. Right. Yep, or, yep, or exactly. Last year was shit city. I you were in a bad shape where you were at too, weren't you? Like yeah, a lot less water than you know that coconut oil in the packs that we, for our food we have coconut oil packs. Mm -hmm. I was mirroring that shit on my lips before I put it in the bucket because my lips were so yeah. fucked up. But yeah. but that just I mean he brought up some good points, Harold. That those those are all um, things that you need to get used to. And and we're gonna get on footwear here in a second. And you were talking about training with what's in your pack. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going upstairs and, and you, you, you train with what you've got. Your feet are not going to be prepared like they should be in sheep or mule deer country. If you don't get the side hill, your ankles are going to get pressure. Your the front of your shins, your legs in, in hot spots. You don't get hot spots going upstairs. I promise you, you get them from going on side hills. You have got to, if at all possible, try and get as much uneven terrain under your belt before you go or your feet are going to be fucking hamburger. Um, and I would imagine you run into that. Yeah, quite a bit. What's funny about Alaska, a lot of it's, a lot of it's vertical. I mean, sheep country is vertical, is they'll be like, man, I, this altitude is kicking my butt. And I go, you realize Alaska is sea level. Yeah, <laughs> <it> really <is. laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and so uh -huh. they're like, they're like, oh, shit, that didn't work. I mean, so you really have no excuse for not having lungs yeah. in, in, uh, in, in, in Alaska. Uh, so it's your, if you, you just got to have the, a lot of it with me, it's mind over matter. I mean, but um, it, it just physically fit. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you listen to that David Coggins book? I did, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about like training, like if it's fucking raining outside or if it's snowing or if it's hot. Yeah. Well, he's an ultra marathon runner, so training in the condition, like Harold's saying, training in the conditions you foresee your, that, that's your the, hunt's going to be on or your race or whatever. I'd say that's the one thing I've tried to work on this year is doing cardio. I The heat. I don't like. It mm -hmm. was training at 2 o'clock in the afternoon because I don't like packing in when it's 90. It just kills me. We just did it, and obviously Frank does. You kick, He kicked the shit out of me on the way in. I would say you waited for me a couple times. You're probably 100 yards in front of me, I would say, the one time. Yeah, maybe. And that's, I would have to say probably not to... Uh, uh, I hate to rep or, uh, I hate to boost CrossFit, but I, his lungs—he's <laughs> been doing a shitload of more working out. Mm -hmm. I—I'd uh, have to say your lungs seem to be better than they ever have. You didn't get nearly as winded as you were last year, did it? I, I'm asking because we didn't it talk could about be. it. On the I mean, it could be doing that. I—I I try to hike at least three or four times a week as well, so I'll hit Green Mountain as well or the Tower Trail and stuff. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think doing a lot of cardio is pretty important. Yeah. yeah, and with us living in Colorado, there's not a you know better. There's people you know uh, you know big time athletes, uh, world class athletes that train in Colorado just because of what we have in our backyard just normally. So I think the I think the closest thing we have to like high country mule deer hunting or high country hunting, the closest thing we have here in, in Denver is the Tower, Tower Trail. Trail. It's it's the exact same. You have super steep inclines, and you have a little bit of gradual, and then you have like rock scrambling at the end. Yeah, it's 
I think it's super realistic. Well, yeah. the, 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 what was amazing to me, and I, he probably got tired of me talking about it, for whatever I'm doing now nutritionally or whatever, I wasn't sore on day two on the trip. Usually that hike in, which did kick the shit out of me, but I felt great on day two. But you do notice, you said it when I got to the trail, the air is thin here. We're at 13,000 feet. You just don't... The, People don't realize no matter how tough they are or, or, or no matter how much they've trained, there's got to be some mental toughness when you lose, when you don't have oxygen. Mm-hmm. It just fucking kills people. They don't yeah. understand it. Um, some guys can suffer through rain and, you know, different things. But if you're not used to that oxygen deprivation, you're probably going to be going about 10 yards at a time and taking a break at, at that altitude because they're just not used to it. We're lucky we live here. So, you, you know, we're, it's not as bad. You know, what's also, I'm just I'm not to go backwards too far, but when it comes to like rain gear is another thing. Um, there's some very expensive rain gear out there. If you buy the Kuyu, if you buy the the Sitka, and uh, I recommend Sitka if you go out of the two out of the two there. First Light's also a good one. But what's funny about it is I'm up there and these guys got a lot of money. They're once in a lifetime hunt for sheep hunting. And they got this, you know, five, $600 rain gear, but they hear rain hitting the tent. No, I'm going out in this shit. So <laughs> if, if you're that kind of person, just go to Walmart and get the, the cheapest or even buy a trash bag and poke you know, a hole for your head <laughs> and your arms. Because if you're not going to get out of the tent anyways because of weather, you don't need a you know, five $600 rain gear. And I, I, you don't know how many people I've had to shove out of the tent. It's like you wear it, use it, they, yeah. but they just don't. Yeah. No, I'd say that's that's true. Um, the Okay, so let's go to, to footwear. Um there's a big, I don't say debate, but South Cox, who's a, well, he's going to be on the podcast tomorrow. Super good friend, unbelievable killer, great stick bow guy. Fucker wears like moccasins basically, right? He wears mm-hmm. shitty flexible shoes and he's promoted that forever. I would say if you have foot like a Native American and haven't had issues, maybe you can get away with that. But uh, boots like Solomon's, I love Solomon tennis shoes, but they have a Quest 4D, which leaks like the Iraqi Navy. Um, great, comfortable shoe. But if you're going on more of an extreme hunt, you're not going to be able to get away with the more flexible $109 cheaper footwear. You can get away with it if you're tough. You're just... The, the possibility of hot spots from side hilling, the leather stretching, shit falling off, soles falling off, things like that are, are extremely high. And I think you're wearing these this year, right? The camera? Yep. So these I've got on, um, what are they, 2092s or 1092s? I can't remember. I don't know either. All right. Well, we've got some gray and orange Zamberlins that are badass boots. Frank's a Salewa guy. So I'm guessing you're in the same you wear stiffer footwear for the most yeah part. i have to i mean i've got i mean if you look at my ankles look like roadmaps on them i've had multiple surgeries on both ankles and i was like the gentleman that's going to be here tomorrow i did hunt in tennis shoes i did hunt in real light stuff but then i'd throw and then pack out you know a half an elk on my back which a lot of people say you know that's bullshit I, if i debone a hind quarter and a, and a and a front shoulder and throw back straps in back when i well anyways i i you can do it in three trips and uh but with doing that with tennis shoes on, side hilling, walking straight downhill, um, it, it's a reason why I exclusively have to use mountaineering boots um, because, because of my ankles and because of what I used to do. Now that I'm 58, I mean, I was doing that kind of stuff, you know, clear up to 45 or whatever. But 
I, I wish I would have uh, had a little more sense back then and gone to a stiffer boot. 34 is when shit hit the fan for me. I was wearing tennis shoes and flexible shoes and just throwing gaiters yep, on. Yep. And my foot my foot got bigger. Arches dropped. Started getting plantar fasciitis. Just foot pain. Hop out of bed in the morning. Look, like I got hit by a fucking sniper. Um, now, Frank, you've always worn fairly stiff boots, haven't you? I used uh, those Solomons for like a year or two, and then I, I switched over. Did you have any issues with them? Just durability. Yeah, and that's it. They're a great, if you're hunting lowland, they're a great boot, right? Mm-hmm. They just they just leak. So here's the next thing I wanted to talk about is obviously buy boots from a reputable source that has good people that aren't paid by that company um, that are recommending it, meaning... Like really, uh, everyone... Reps crispy. <laughs> Crispies are the best. Zamberlin gave me a, a discount on these boots. I think they did you yep, too. Yep. But they gave them to me because I, I bought one set and then they gave me the second set. And I'm a Hanva guy for the most part. I like those boots. But as far as a, a super beefy boot, these are badass too. Um, I didn't, I get everything free. So I'm not representing it because I got it free. I'm representing it because it's really good. There is other footwear on the market that gets represented by a lot of people that is shitty. And that's just how it is. So make sure when you're buying footwear that it's it's got somebody good backing it up is all I'm saying. The next thing is uh, a lot of people get black toe because you have to buy a boot that is at least, I say, a half size bigger, meaning you can slide your toe all the way forward in the boot with it unlaced and fit at least your finger behind your heel and the the, the back of the boot. Do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a um, black toe. That, that's huge. I mean, with, with mountaineering boats, I look like a, I mean, I don't, I don't like to use the retard as, as the right word. Just look stupid. It's like, uh, you know, putting on steel toe boots on and take go to the store and you push your thumb down to see where the hell your toe is. Well, you're not going to feel it through uh, through mountaineering boots, so you can't tell. So you just got to be able to work it. And I've got that, that bad toe before because I just wanted like the perfect fit, like there's no sliding around. And then like Aaron said, got a little more educated. And, and you, if you lease it up like a ski boot, first thing you do when you put a ski boot on is you tap your toe into the ground and then lace it all up. Well, a hunting boot, you want to hit your heel into the ground and then lace it all up. So you can keep your toe, your feet from moving back and forth as long as you lace it upright. And um, and I wasn't doing that. So now I do have a half-inch oversize. And the thing, I've lost both my middle toes more than anything. They ain't fucking ever grown back. They die. They grow back dead. They yeah. just fall off. Have you gotten black toe before? Mm, yeah. Well, if not, I've had some pretty bad blisters and stuff. Well, I, I think what people don't understand, and I'm only bringing this up, I get messages. I bought these boots and they suck. My toes keep getting falling off and I'm getting blisters. And I'm like on the top of my feet, on the sides. And I'm like, well, that's not a boot problem. That's a, a fit problem. A fit problem. If you buy your shoes to the exact size and then you have 100 pounds on your back and you go downhill, your toe has toenail is going to jam into the front of that boot that jams into the quick. And then it from that shifting, it turns it black. Well, when you have that extra space, it's not jamming into the front of the boot. Then you don't lose your toe. The blisters and all that stuff, it's got to be the right fit. It's not the boot's fault. Um, I will say if you buy shitty leather boots, when you side hill, when you start, there'll be an inch wide gap between your laces. 
And the more you side hill and if that leather gets wet, you're going to tighten those boots and tighten them. And pretty soon the lacing system will almost be touching, which is a Kinetrek thing, mm -hmm. because that leather's cheaper. And that's how you're going to get hot spots is that side movement. And so you got to be cognizant and, and it, it, get the best foot where you, you possibly can. How often up there are you getting leaky boots falling apart with clients? Um, I'd say 30% uh, of the time. Yeah. I mean, I have a client, there's a, or if you just talk about in camp, there's a couple of people every year in camp that, that have the Danners, that have the the stuff they've always hunted with. And, you know, typically a lot of these people are coming from the South. They're tree, tree, tree stand hunters and stuff like that. So one, that's, that leaves the problem of, that's probably the first time they've ever had good footwear. So they never had it on. So they're going to have blisters because in the environment they hunt in, they never had to have a pair of boots like that. Uh, or they're pheasant hunters up in game and they have their danners and they just go, you know, um, typical, you know, low land hunting, lower 48 hunting. So it's just uh, not comparing apples to apples. So it's, uh, there's, I have, there's not a boot that will do everything. And I really like about these Zimmerman is I look for a little bit of cush because I'll have, if I'm packing out sheep, I got hundred pounds on my back, but I also be able to want, want to be able to walk a knife edge or on the side of a knife edge where I'm kicking my note, my, my toe of my boot in and it's on a little ledge it's like a half inch long supporting my weight and keeping my foot and my feet from flexing and um so the best combination i've found between having a little bit of cush and having ankle support and the uh, solid soles is uh the zimberland's really been good and i would say we'll go around the horn here i have hunted the last three years in the hanvog makra for the most part uh they've got a new one called the ferrata which is probably a little bit better than the makra and then the zamberlins for like a full-on holy shit extreme boot for for mountain hunting uh frank you're running Salewa ravens and vultures yeah and those have been good for you for three four years now? yeah probably the last four years i think i think the number one thing to realize here is we're using these and we're not paid and they don't fall apart i think we got a di did you get yours free or a discount no nah, there's a outdoor pro links outdoor industry discount yeah for like everybody it's yeah. like i just get them from them and i was just talking to the honvog guy um about this and and uh one of the things that the, you know they see a lot is so, like the mocker is not really a boot to, to do certain things in, right? You're going to wear it out, basically. It's just not as beefy as it should be compared to their Omega or this uh, Zamberlin, right? Um, if, you, if you get a guy that is um, promoting an average, I don't know what to bring up, just a standard leather boot for everything. I, I've mountain goat hunted in this. I've done this and this. This is the best boot ever. I would generally say he's generally full of shit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I guess what I'm getting at is we get so many people that get a hold of us that buy these specific types of boots because someone promoted them, but they're not applicable. Like you said, one boot does not do everything. I don't, even, uh, I don't even tell people what, like, people are like, what Salewa should I get? I'm like, dude, you should go to a store that has a lot of boots like preferably maybe a mountaineering st store if you have one nearby and try on all the boots because i don't i hate telling people what boot to get because everyone's like i'm flat-footed mm -hmm. not everyone's flat-footed i have a, like a pretty wide four foot and narrow heel and the salewas fit me great except the heel i get heel rub in them otherwise i'd wear salewas they're great so this is gonna be my first year for Zimberland. I'm taking them up to Alaska this year. Um, but I have been wearing them. I went went and did a Grace Tories last week. Um, and um, it was uh, actually kind of looking the area where um, you know some friends of mine have goat tags. But it was uh, it was um, um, 
I haven't, so I haven't got proven tested them with, with what could be on my back um, in regards to 100 pounds or whatnot. But I just stepped into them. By, I never heard of Zimberlin until I was at the Utah show last year, the Sports Expo, and um, and they had a booth set up, and he heard me in a doing a, um, a radio deal. And he noticed me as I was come walking by. Hey, come on over. And I looked at his boots and put them on. I'm like, this is almost too good to be true. I mean, I couldn't believe how well they fit right off the cuff. Yeah, they're 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 a damn good mountaineering boot. That's for for sure. So I guess to wrap that portion up, don't buy shitty footwear. Don't believe everything that you hear. Get out and try them on. Try to get advice from people that aren't paid by that boot supplier. Just people that actually believe in the boot and make sure, again, get a half size bigger or your toes will fall the fuck off. I promise you they will because I've, I've done it myself. And in fact, um, Amy, prime example, tried to get Amy boots and got to get them bigger and she didn't whatever. And then how many times I have to rub her fucking feet from her toes <laughs> jamming into the front of her boot? Because she just didn't know. She, she bought them just like she bought every other shoe she'd ever worn in her life. Right. And uh, just inexperienced so um okay next up optics so this will be a good one um i guess the the first thing is there is no in my opinion optics company that's going to compete with zeiss swarovski and leica as far as the the tiers down below german glass or european glass can't be matched no matter how much anyone says would would we all agree with that 100 percent. okay so Having said that, that doesn't mean everybody can afford that type of glass. I understand that. But if you are messaging me that all your buddies told you brand X is just as good as Swarovski or, or Zeiss or Leica, they are full of shit. They are paid. They are not telling you the truth. I'll argue that to the end of the day. And I would say Frank and I, and I don't know about you, Harold, we are the only people I know of. We have everything, I guess. We have at the house, we have what? Maven, Sig, Vortex, Leica, Swarovski, Zeiss, Le- uh, Leupold, Nikon. Am I missing anything? Bushnell. Have you had that? No, no, no Bushnell. <laughs> um, I th- we have pretty much everything. Miopta. Miopta is damn stuff. good. Yeah, we got Steiner. So we have everything in 8s, 10s, 15s, and spotters available to us. So you can't tell me... <laughs> that we haven't got to look through it because we'll set it up and look at low light like you should and be able to, like lately I've been looking through 15s at that silhouetted, I've got that 220 mule deer, that ridiculous 3D mm-hmm. target. When the sun goes down, you got 30 minutes of quote unquote legal shooting light. And sometimes it's a hell of a lot more than that, but that's the legal portion of it. I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I would say there's times you can shoot an hour past sundown and be plenty bright. What you'll notice with optics is as the dollar value goes down, meaning you've got $1,000 optics and you've got $2,200 optics or, or three grand, every minute past that 30 minutes after the sundown, that lower dollar optic, you're seeing less and less and less, and that higher dollar optic turns into damn near night vision. You can still see easily what you're looking at, that's where the dollar comes from. So having said that, skipping, I mean, do you want to throw anything in? Or are you, Frank, on the optic stuff? Well, just like you have all that stuff available to you uh, because of um, um, people wanting you to test their products. And it's good, you know, I mean, Aaron does, he, don't, this, he doesn't take anybody's word for it. He tests himself, which I'm sure that's why he has all that stuff. 
uh, to give it the fair shake. But, you know, with me being a guide for as long as I have been, I've seen all of them too. And I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder, glassing the same hillside, looking for bighorn sheep or doll sheep or desert sheep or whatever. And I'll switch. I'll look, I, you know, I'm curious. What, you know, what are you looking through there? And, and I've looked through, you know, the, the lower end stuff, I would, the, the Leopolds. And to a lot of people, Leopolds, that's, that's the high end stuff. Um, and the Nikons and the things like that. And they all say, hey, we got these, you know, you know, they're comparable and the Vortex and stuff like that. So I'll have this client and that's what they could afford and I'll never discredit anything. But it's like, hey, let me look through those. You know, we're looking Alaska. You can hunt 24-7. It does get kind of dark at like what we'd call our 930-ish here in Colorado. It'll get that way for about three hours. But if you can legally see, you can legally shoot in Alaska. There is no sundown sun up. So I'll switch and look through theirs. I'm like, Holy shit, I'd already be in my tent by now. And then <laughs> they're looking through there and he goes, I always wondered why we weren't going back <laughs> yeah. until I looked through your binoculars, yeah. you know? So they're like, this This is a whole different world. And um, so that's the examples I have. Even though I don't have them available to me to go out in the yard and, and look at and set them all up and look at them, I have looked through all of them just through different clients here and there. And they've every one of those clients I've sold on Saworski because that's what I carry. Yeah. And I, we've we've recently started using Zeiss, which I think that SF is probably the only thing I've found as good or better than a EL. They're and they're lighter. They're pretty. Uh, this year, the, my good friend of mine, JD Ponciano, he now switched. He's now works for Zeiss. He's a rep for them, and he gave me a pair to take brown bear hunting and to kind of check out. And I'm like, man, you're not going to talk me out of my Saworski. Well, I didn't. I I give an honest effort to those <laughs> to those uh, Zeiss. And sure as shit, I was sold. They're lighter. They're balanced better in my hand. And I'm like, huh. So I'm using the Zeiss this year for uh, the sheep deal. The, the spotter, I would say, is a, is a tough. We have that new 95. What's weird is the Zeiss spotter, when you dial it all the way in, the way they, they built that for legs, it's not as good as the Swarovski at low power. But as you dial in the Swarovski, if you can imagine, that hole gets smaller mm-hmm. where the Zeiss does not. So at 70 power, you didn't change a whole lot from 30. It's fucking weird because normally, you know, you're cranking oh, yeah, and it no gets doubt. darker. And I'm like, it's not getting darker. You got to look through it, dude. It's badass. I haven't looked through You're talking about the, the, the Zeiss? Yeah, that, that, it's a big motherfucker, though. It's heavy. 95. Mm. I haven't looked through it. It's nice, but the I don't know how, how many. What are you thinking, Frank? You're smiling. Oh, I was just thinking that I always have people ask me, like, uh, why do I need to see stuff in low light? I'm like, well, <laughs> <laughs> what? That's, where, that's, yeah. when, that's when they that's come when, out. Yeah, that's when stuff's moving early in the morning and late in the evening. You know, it's, yeah. you could you you miss that last 30 minutes or that first hour, 30 minutes of, of light. You're, miss, you're missing a lot of a lot of activity. And it's not just that, especially in that godforsaken hellhole you hunt in where it gets so cloudy and dark. Mm-hmm. I remember one specific mule deer hunt. I was running the Hubble. Pinch had a Hubble, and another guy had something else. And but it was in a fourth season mule deer. We were helping, and it was foggy. And and but I'm like behind the spotter, and I'm like, look. look I mean, you, the normal lingo. That's got a 27 inch main beam. Get on the fucking gun. Shoot, shoot. And the guy with the optic that wasn't the high end, he can't find the deer. So then I get the spotter on the deer. Well, I can barely see it's an animal, right? It looks like a log. With his, it's with it's his setup? two o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. right? I mean, oh, we're not talking low light. <laughs> we're just talking real bad cloud cover, some fog. And John and I are having our conversation back and forth. And it's like we're counting like, holy shoot this motherfucker right mm-hmm. now. Where 
he would have never seen that deer with what he had. And that was two o'clock in the afternoon. So I get the question. Some guys, why do you want to see low light? How many animals are we picking out before the sun comes up? And on a high pressured area, that may give you the split second advantage of some other dude glassing. This is, I don't know about, you know, I'm hunted Alaska as much as you, obviously. But here, you could have some chuckle puppet. You're chasing that deer out. You're trying to get on it before he is. If you've spotted it before daylight, you can reposition yourself in a better stockable position. That guy doesn't even know you're there because you saw it 20 minutes before he did. So why the fuck wouldn't you want to see it in low light? I mean, that because I've gotten that too, and I'm like, I thought they were kidding. Like, they were like, why would you want to see it in low light? You can't shoot it then. Well, no, but you can shoot it after, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and a big thing, like Aaron was saying, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we get in Alaska because you almost have, you know, in August, you have 22 hours of sunshine. So when you think of sunshine, you think of what it does to the ground. You get heat waves. So the other big thing between low light and and, and having good optics to be able to make it almost like light vision is heat waves. Mm-hmm. So you get that lower end optics. You're trying to glass a thousand yards away and you're kind of on a on a plateau above timberline. And what comes off that ground is those heat waves. So you can't even see it. And then I pick up, you know, higher end stuff and by God, there it is again. So uh, heat waves for the middle of the day when you're glassing up that sheep or the, or, the, or the deer that's bedded up, you know, for the day, you know, in the shade, glassing from heat waves into a shaded area where that buck is. Um, if, 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 you're, if you're a hunter and all the investments you have, and you have people buying your birthday presents, you have people buying your Christmas presents, just tell them to put money in the envelope because you're saving up for some good <laughs> optics because – the three things is low light, heat waves, and to me, the biggest thing is is eye relief. So when I'm glassing as a guy looking for somebody for their once-in-a-lifetime sheep, and I'm glassing 20 hours a day, um, you get to the point where almost your eyeballs feel like they're bleeding if you don't have good optics. If you got good optics, I'm like, I mean, I could do it all day long, no different than people wear glasses as, as because they have to. And then I have my client that's happened to put them down. I look at them, his eyes are all bloodshot. They're like... I, you know, I can't do this anymore. I got to give my eyes a break. And I, I never have to give my eyes a break. So one of the things that I'll touch on there um, before we move on to what people should carry for, for power and everything else is what happens when you have chromatic aberration or edge to edge clarity issues, meaning the outer edge is is crappy and the, the middle is clear, which happens on lower end optics. One of the reasons you get migraines or headaches oh, yeah, another one. is when you're looking through this is how it was explained to me from an optometrist. So I'm just going to explain it the way, and he's a hunter. When your eyeball is looking through the middle and it's clear, you're not going to be moving that optic perfectly all the time to match your eye to the middle of that optic. Your eye is going to drift off of center. As it drifts off of center, if it's shitty on the edge, it snaps back, goes to the edge, snaps back, goes to the edge, snaps back, where with high-end optics, goes to the edge stays at the edge. It's you content. Can, it's content. Can, yeah. The whole way. Well, with your eyes snapping back, snapping back, that's how you get migraines. That's mm-hmm. the number one thing is the edge-to-edge clarity. As you get to the edge, it goes back and you can't even control it because mm-hmm. it sees that right. shitty edge. So migraines is another, you know, major, major problem or headaches, and that's how you get those. Now, um, I think we covered that enough. Let's move on to the next big question guys ask me is, you know, eights or tens, fifteens, and the spotter. I, for one, I love 15 power, but they only, they fit the bill for certain things and other things they don't want. I don't want to pack those fuckers in. They're heavy. If I've got a 95, an 8 or a 10 power and a 95 is perfect for me. 
compared to I don't really want unless we're scouting or it's not very far to do the 10, 15, and 95. So I'm a 10, 95 guy or a 10, 85 guy. I always have been. What do you suggest for guys as far as power goes? Um, I, you know, I'd love to be able to carry the 95s. I don't have the 95s. Um, you know, when you're in, in Alaska for sheep or doll sheep, there's three ways they're legal, either eight years old, double broomed, or at least full on one side. So when you're got your guide license on the on, at risk, you got the clients once in a lifetime deal, you got to make sure that it's all, it's all up and up. So when I'm trying to grow rings from a thousand yards away, um, you know, the best I'm using now is the 85s, um, but um, it'd be much better. Now, as far as the 15s go, if I'm glassing mule deer country and Gunnison, I'm sitting on, you know, just putting a tripod between my legs and glassing, there's nothing. With the field of view of those, of those 15s, you're going to see field mice. I mean, you're going to see anything and everything that's out there, and it's so much better eye relief than then. Because a lot of times from long distance, we're using our spotting scopes to look that far away, and there's just no field of view. Um, so the 15s, they have their place, but um, and they're instrumental when I'm close to a vehicle or not going that far. Other than that, I'll just have my 10 by 42s and um, and then my spotter. Now, Frank, you've had 10s, 12s, 15s, and what do you kind of ha- what have you settled on? I I like 10s. I've had the 12s and hand holding a, t- a set of 12s is a fucking nightmare for me at least <laughs> I, I don't like hand holding 12s but 10s 10s um yeah i like i just like 10s even on a tripod i think spotting with the 10s on the tripod i spot more stuff like that than anything and then spotter as long as it's a 65 on up i don't really care that like a that like a 65 is probably one of my favorite of all time just because it's so nice and compact and it's freaking clear crystal clear yep yeah they're all the all the top three are pretty hard to be yeah yeah um so that just with the guys asking these questions i'll get the hey i whitetail hunt but i'm coming out west should i get eights or tens i don't see anything issue with eights you're not going to have quite the legs the tens will have but if you're trying to do the mixed bag let's face it you're probably if you're coming out west not going to be counting annual eye and uh you know the g3 or whatever you're just looking for a good representation of the species and eights will probably be fine i don't have any issues with tens in a tree stand i, mean, I don't know about you but i, I use 10 by 32 saworski in the tree stand yeah they don't they don't bug me at all um i think the the biggest thing people need to realize is I'll get guys that say I have $600 binoculars and I have $1,500 saved. What spotter should I get? My number one advice is sell the $600 binoculars, save, take the $1,500 in that, and buy high-end binoculars. Don't get mm-hmm. a don't get a spotter. I was kind of curious to your opinion on that. My advice is always buy the highest end glass known to man before you buy a spotter. Like I was just saying, like with people that um, that that uh, tell tell your friends and family that uh, Christmas and birthdays don't give you any presents. Just stuff put you know. I'm saving for optics. Yeah. Um, and, and I agree with Aaron 100%. Um, and even like Saworski, uh, for a long time because I do all the archery hunts. You know, other than seeing an animal that um, is, might be, you know, five hours to go get to him because you're going up and down, up and down several different drainages, and you don't want to do that unless you know he's legal. Thus, you know, the 85 spotter. But as archery deal, um, sometimes when I first started out, I was using the monocular. So the monocular was just a doubler. It would screw you, take out the eyepiece of one side or the other of your 10 by 42s, screw this in, and then it made it 20 by 42s. 
And then I could see it from 200 yards away and tell it was eight-year-old ram. I could tell that it was a full curl, at least on one side. So um, that made ultralight, ultralight stuff. But it was a handicapped if I wanted to, if I was looking at sheep from, uh, you know, two miles away. God, is that sucker legal or not? That's where it was the handicap. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I, I mean, I, I think if you're going to take anything away from this portion is before you buy a spotter, um, don't spend the money on the spotter, upgrade your glass. And what I get without name dropping too much, because I don't want every company to hate me, is they will list a higher end mid-level binocular and they're saying, well, I've got these, I'm going to go ahead and buy a spotter. And I still suggest get rid of the higher end mid-level or, or, or mid-mid-level binocular sell those, take the money you've saved for a spotter and buy the top three, the big, the big three glass and you'll be farther ahead. I would say you outspot me on the tripod, what, three to one? With the binos? Yeah. I, I, I would say, but I would say Frank, uh, with 10 power binoculars. Well, I think the difference though is like usually you'll just get straight on your spotter a lot of the time and then I'll go straight to my binos, which more field, of, more view. field yeah. of view, yeah. It, it's a good combo, and I do that with Frank because I know I'm probably picking things up, which seems to be how it works. There's stuff he just can't see with the binos that I'll pick up with the spotter before he does, but I'd say he's picking up three animals to my one hand-holding because um, I'm just not as steady as he is on the tripod, and I, because I know he's picking the world apart on the tripod, I'll grab my spotter after I grab low-hanging fruit with the tins, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, that sounds like you're complementing each other really well and it works perfect in that environment because, yeah, there's some stuff, you know, after when I, you know, pretty much know that sheep's got to be over there and, you know, bighorn sheep, they blend in so darn well, I know he's got to be there and I just taken it apart with my uh, with my 10 by 42s, can't find him, neither can my client. Then the next thing, I'm now I'm pulling out my spotter and glassing with my spotter. Then all of a sudden, like, geez, there he is and put my binoculars up, like, still can't pick him out even though I know where he is. So it's, there is, if you have a hunting partners like you guys are, um, then that that's a good compliment to, to do I have it to either way. I change my glassing a lot when he's not around because he eats up the mountainside with those tents on a tripod. Uh-huh. When he's gone, and I hate glass, I don't hate. It's awesome glassing off a tripod. I just freehand more, so I freehand low hanging fruit with tins, pick up what I can, then I put them on the tripod, and then start picking yeah. apart with those, and then. I get to skip the tripod portion when he's around because he stays on right. the tripod and I go to the spotter. But I think, uh, not that this is kind of related, but if you're hunting with a partner, I think it would be helpful if you're glassing together to figure out who's going to shoot first. Yeah. I think, uh, <laughs> I think one thing like if I, I've noticed is like hunting with other people is a lot of the time it's whoever spots it first is the one who gets to go shoot it. Well, that, that just means you're fucking, you're, you're just like zooming past stuff. You're not taking your time yeah. and patiently <laughs> glassing. So I think that's something that people Either should. Either that or if it's really big, you pass over it and hope <laughs> everybody doesn't see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the other oh. thing is what I'd like to say, like the compliment what Aaron was saying earlier about, you know, before you get a spotter, get really good binoculars. And people are saying, man, that don't make no sense. I can go out there and get the, the Nikon. I can go out there and get the Bushnell binoculars as long as I see it then that's all I need. Then I'll put my really good spotter on it. It's like, well, you're missing the whole point and maybe this will make it a little more clear for you. If you got better binoculars, you will see more and that would be the reason to put the spotter on it. So if you're not seeing nothing, you don't need to have the spotter anyways. Don't you think, like for deer especially, like after you've seen a shitload of deer, like we, we glass a lot of deer, 
and uh, even without having the spotter, you can kind of tell, even though if they're far, like some of the deer we saw were far, you can you can just see the rack. You can see if it's a big yeah. deer or you can see if it's just a fucking... You can uh, tell a no-brainer. Uh, yeah, you can yeah. just tell a no-brainer. Yeah, like that one, the, the couple of big deer that we saw, you were in the spotter and I was in the binos. I'm like, yeah, that looks pretty good. Then you got on the spotter, you're like, yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. Like, you, you know if you spend yeah. enough time... It probably goes for sheep well, too, I'm sure. Well, if you could record the lingo, and we've never glassed with you, but I'm sure the lingo is going to be the same. Things like, ooh, that's a big body. Look at his belly. Mm-hmm. I can't see that. I'm seeing that with binoculars. I'm not mm-hmm. seeing that with a spotter. Or, Jesus, that thing's, that one I picked up was like, remember the, the I was like, holy fuck, that thing's got a big frame. It ended up having like crab claws front and rear. But I picked that frame up in the binos. Mm-hmm. And so I would have shot that deer with my stick easily because he's probably what 28 wide already yeah it was a good deer he didn't he wouldn't score much he's an mm-hmm. old deer he's got crab claw syndrome like a motherfucker but front and back but he's an old deer i picked that frame up in binos most guys with lower end binos that's a deer it's got horns on its head they can't tell but immediately that frame was sticking out from that's got to be about a mile away well when i'm scouting for deer i'm carrying my spotter but when i'm hunting deer i pretty much kind of knows what's there and i can i can recognize like I say, sometimes I put my initials on certain deer. When you're guiding area and you draw a certain unit and you're picking those drainages out, you kind of know what's there come archery season. And then, so I don't carry my spotter no more because I already, I know I can kind of tell the difference with good binoculars. Yeah, I would, I know I would agree. I would agree totally. Um, I think uh, the other thing too is a, a tripod. Um, if you've already got a mid-level spotter and you throw a $150 tripod on it, you really, you just went from driving a Daewoo to driving a Daewoo with a couple flat tires because you already have kind of crappy glass or not high-end glass, and then you don't have stability to go along with it. You you got to have a very high-end, stable spotter, or excuse me, tripod to go along with that spotter. It doesn't need, it doesn't have to be a stable, obviously, with binoculars, but you, you got to have a good spot. You got to have a good tripod. I mean, there's nothing, there's no way around it. And, and the one thing where I really notice is that long distance when the wind's blowing, it fucking sucks. I mean, there's no yep. way around it. I mean, you're just not going to see what you want to. You'll be blowing off the animal. And with a stable spot or tripod, you don't get that. Yeah. Even, you know, you got a lot of spotters where you can, you can just hang rocks from the bottom and trying to, trying to get them to be stabilized and, um, um, I mean, when you're doing it for, I wouldn't say a living, but you're doing it for somebody's once-in-a-lifetime hunt, you want to give them 110%. So um, I'm fortunate enough to just been saving my money and, and get good stuff so I can produce good stuff. Yeah. I guess having, with you saying that, my, all, but I mean, do not, do that, I'm not saying skip a hunt to go buy optics. Obviously, always go hunting and just buy the best optics you can afford. But don't kid yourself. I mean, you're not ever going to compete with the big three it's just not going to happen at this point in time i haven't seen it but i totally understand before we get hate mail of i can only afford this you're totally talked down we're not talking down optics elitist yeah well i, I son guess, of a bitch yeah optics elitist <laughs> i'm just saying it's it's hard to beat those but i mean do the best with what you've gotten by the best glass that that you can um, well, i definitely didn't start out this way i guarantee no. you that I, I was talking to Amy about, uh, I had Nikon Monarchs forever, and then I had Brunton Eternas, and then I actually won a raffle at the Bighorn Sheep uh, Banquet. Um, I bought one ticket, that's all I could afford, and I won binoculars and a Swarovski binoculars and a spotter. Damn. You're talking about a fucking game changer. Like, the next day, I hiked into where I've got my goat tag this year, and it literally was like when you first put butter on toast, 
It's a whole different world. I was like, it's a whole different meal. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. There yeah. was things I was seeing that, for example, um, in the cliffs, I was glassing up in the cliffs and I was picking out the top four inches of goat's horns because they were above me and gla- you know how they'll bed right on the edge. Right. I was picking out those horns, right? Just, just the top. Fuck, that ain't happening with cheap glass. There's just no way around it. And the other thing I was picking out was annuli, growth rings. You ain't doing it with cheap optics. And the one thing when you go on super high-end hunts where I generally don't have the tag in my pocket, I'm helping out. Some of these guys, Ben Rawls would be a good example. When he says 190, he's not fucking kidding. That's what he wants in a Ram. And it takes high-end optics to, to be able yeah. to judge one. When those, uh, I've told this story before, but we had all the uh, Siri Indians with us. We were in Tiburon, and we, we found a tank, right? But he's 190 or nothing. And they kept writing in the ground 180 in the dirt. They couldn't speak English. And they kept going, grande is grande. And I, I'd have to exit. And I'm like, he ain't fucking shooting. I, I don't know what to tell you, boys. He's not going to kill it. But we were glassing that sheep from a mile away with heat waves. And you're just not. We had one guy with a, I'm not going to mention the name, spotter. You could see it had big, a big, but you couldn't yeah. count growth rings. You're just not going to do that until you get super high. And glass, that tag's $95,000. Probably going to want some good optics. I think it's down to sixty-five now. But it, you've been on enough hunts like that. It just doesn't cut the mustard unless you got the high-end optics. Yeah, and the stress between whether you're just helping a friend or the stress because they know you've been doing a long time or, or being the guide. And when they're asking for that kind of quality or that kind of ram or what's this ram going to be, it's, uh, you know, it, I wouldn't say it's stressful, but you, you, I don't say nothing if I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. I can't tell. I mean, but if I know when I tell you a number, it's, it's, it's going to be that number pretty close within an inch or two easily. Definitely. All right. Well, that's probably, you guys got anything to add on optics? Nope. I'm good. Okay. The next one, which Harold, it would be interesting if you have anything to add to this. This is a lot more on the technical side of archery. In the last few weeks, I've gotten a lot of questions, guys shooting probably farther than they should be, of my my arrow is, you know, I, it was basically 430 up to 500 grains is what these individuals' arrows weighed. I can't get my sight to go to 100 yards. My friends are telling me to shoot a lighter arrow. Okay, well, that is not the arrow's fault for the most part. That is your peep height's fault. So if you can imagine if you took a a measurement when you knock your arrow and you go from the top of that knock to your peep, if that dimension is in the five and a half, six inch range, then you got a small ass face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably got, or you got a high anchor. Uh, I'm just kidding. The lower that dimension means the that was lower. A good one. Yeah. <laughs> small feet, small socks. Um, you when you have that lower dimension, that means that your sight is going to have to be lower starting out, which means it's not going to have the legs that you're probably going to need to shoot long distance. For a higher peep height, that means your sight gets to start out higher, which means you can dial down more before it hits your arrow. It doesn't really have as much to do with arrow weight. So mathematically, which I tried not to be too much of a smartass when I was asking who you got this intel info from, if you drop 50 grains off your arrow, you only gain two and a half to three feet per second um, per every 10 grains. So 
15 feet per second on 50 grains, which isn't shit. That does not, it's not going to get you. That's not a deal breaker one way or another. Fuck no, that doesn't mean anything. And so you might get a couple, get some extra yards, but for that big gap, that big break where you really, you're you're at 75 and you're trying to get to 100, you have got to bump your peep height up, meaning you may need to change your anchor point. So, of course, one of my First comments was, why don't just get closer? That's the the stick bow hunter in me now. I'm like, well, dude, what the fuck are you shooting? Yeah, do you really want to shoot an animal at 100 yards? I mean, yeah, I'd pick up a rifle. Yeah, some people can do it, but it's not for somebody that just even if you can shoot. My thing is like one step of an animal, like a it's what is that like two three feet? They take one step at 100 yards, and then you're in the guts. I've shot a lot of animals far away, and I I know. The ability it takes as far as shooting and as far as the technical side of getting your bow dialed in and your arrows and the whole. Was this guy from Utah? Yeah, he was. One of them was, yeah. Um, my kind of point was is, hey, if if uh, I'm going to get hate mail over this, if you don't have the capacity and knowledge to get your sight that far and you're asking me these what I would consider rudimentary questions, you probably don't have the ability to shoot. Meaning, if you had the the know-how to get there, you wouldn't be asking me that, which means your your ability to shoot probably would coincide with that brain power. Meaning you're asking me a question that tells me right then you probably shouldn't be taking that fucking shot, is, mm-hmm. is what I was is getting at. Because anybody with... Um, if you have the that true ability to shoot that distance, you have learned how to get your bow to shoot that far. If you're just shooting that far that and you don't have the brain power, that means you probably haven't had the long-term practice to get there. So what I'm saying is don't shoot that far away because you're probably going to miss it or wound it. But it's not the arrow weight's fault. So well, the last thing I want to see, if you are going to try and shoot that distance, this is what killed me. And... Uh, is these guys are telling this dude to shoot 100 yards with a 350 fucking grain arrow. So they didn't say any of the things I talked about peep height. They told him to shoot a lighter arrow, which loses so much momentum, which he's probably shooting a mechanical head. There's not enough energy to activate that mechanical. Yeah, it'll bounce off the animal, which I have seen firsthand. Um, by the time, even, you got to figure a 350 grain arrow, let's say even shooting 300 feet per second. If you have the ability or you have a shooting machine, or you have the, the the technical side to do it, why don't you run the numbers not out of the bow, but run the numbers at 100 yards, what that arrow weighs, and the speed. So then you're going to figure out kinetic energy and fair momentum, and there ain't fucking much when you get to 100 yards. And the only reason why I had success shooting far away, which I'm not at all telling people to do it, is I was pushing a 550 or 600 grain arrow at 280 plus feet per second, and I wasn't losing the momentum, so I still had a, good, a lot of ass behind that arrow. When you call me or message me and say, I'm shooting 450, 430 grain arrow, my friends tell me to drop 50, 60 grains off my arrow, so I have the ability to shoot 100 yards, that tells me right there, you probably shouldn't be shooting past 50 or 60 yards. That is the, now you may get lucky on the target, right, or a 3D target. That antelope I shot with, uh, with Nestor is exactly a good example with Frank. That was at a far distance, took a step, we killed it. But I was two feet back from where I aimed when I shot it because it took a step right when I shot. Mm-hmm. So anyway, 
make sure that your ability and your knowledge and your know-how, all of those things coincide with each other. So as you're starting to shoot farther, you need to gain the knowledge of how to do that. And by no means, I'm not, I'm not mad you guys asked the question and, and I'm more than willing to help. Um, but I am saying the, the actual likelihood of you hitting that animal at that distance, if you haven't learned those other things, is pretty, it's going to be luck. Um, and if you do hit it, your arrow is probably going to bounce off. Well, I agree with Frank. I think in that situation there, um, you need, you just need to be a hunter. A hunter, if you're an archer and you picked up a bow in the first place, you shouldn't be thinking 100 yards. Um, you, you need to think about the, the whole uh, aspect of bow hunting and, and what generates it. I mean, I know what brings me to bow hunting. And it's, it's about getting close. It's about fooling the animal and, and that kind of stuff. So if you pick up a bow and your first thought is to go out there and shoot 100 yards, realize those kind of people like Aaron are one out of 1,000. I don't want to goose him too high, but I've seen Aaron shoot. I know he can shoot. He's got the reputation. He stands behind it. He can, he can you wouldn't want him shooting at you at 100 yards. But that's how many people could actually do that. Um, it pretty much is the people that are advertising and that kind of stuff on social media and stuff like that. And they're trying to influence a, a crowd of people that should not be influenced in that matter, in my opinion. It, it is. And I, you know, I take full responsibility. Uh, I, now that I've gotten closer, it's way more addictive. I mean, this getting off subject of learning, but I can promise you, you take an animal at eight yards. It's a hell of a lot more rewarding than 80. And I've taken a lot at 80. And every time I shoot one sub 20, I literally have like the self gratification. I am, I'm, I am like, okay, I just beat that animal at its own game. Where at 80, I didn't really beat shit. I just, <laughs> I can shoot pretty good. So I wasn't, you know what I mean? I'm, I wasn't really a hunter. I was a shooter with, I was a decent hunter and a really good shooter where you get sub 20 you're a good hunter and that's what you want to be as a good hunter, not a good shooter. I mean, it's nothing wrong with being a good shooter, but there's a lot more to take away from it being a good hunter than there is being a good shooter. And it's coming from a guy, again, I take full responsibility. I shot a lot of shit way farther than I should have with a compound. It just took me to pick up the stick to kind of realize that. And I mean, even you've kind of changed a little bit. Yeah, I definitely practice far. I like to practice far. I think practicing far makes your close shots that much easier. So I shoot at Bear Creek all the time, 80-plus yards, and I, I don't like to shoot at animals that far. Like I said it last year when we, were, we started this, or did we start the podcast last year? Maybe yeah. before. Yeah, you did. I want to I wanna shoot stuff closer. And yeah. I think the closer you shoot them, especially with a compound, on, I mean, also probably with a recurve, I guess, as well, closer you are, the less room for error. So Yeah. Yeah, and the more, the, the, there's more excitement there and, and everything else. The adrenaline rush is way higher. I mean, it's yeah. the reason why, you know, when I was 14 years old and shot something with a rifle, my first year I hunted elk with a rifle and then deer with my bow. And then the following year I hunted just the opposite. And, I mean, if, if that deer was anywhere between me and, for one, if I saw that deer, I know I could go get close enough and go kill it, even if I was going to shoot it 200 yards in my 30-odd six. I mean, that deer was dead, and there was no fun in it for me. I didn't want the season to be over with. I wanted to spend more time hunting. So now I picked up a bow and and I spend more time hunting than shooting. So to pick up a bow and wanting to shoot 100 yards right off the get-go or have that be a goal of yours means you're taking a back, steps backwards as far as a hunter and you become a more of a shooter. And, and it's just too much can happen. Go back to being a hunter. Yeah, and it took me, it did, it took me to pick up the, the, the stick to realize that. Um, I think that... Uh, kind of brings up another good uh uh subject is um 
you know, this goes back, this gets away from archery, but pack weight, probably the easiest way to lighten your pack load is experience and, uh, and woodsmanship. Um, me- meaning the, the more experience you have, the more you can probably get away with, or at least, you know, you can get away with. And we're going to circle back here to pack weight. Cause just cause you brought that up, made me think about this. Most guys I know have like a spreadsheet for everything that goes in their pack with an exact weight. I don't weigh shit that goes in my pack. Um, if it, I used to, um, and I wouldn't say that's a rookie thing at all. I'm just, some guys get bored and it's fun to do, but if I have, let's use the reactor. That's probably the most bomb proof stove that I know of. If there is another stove that comes into a possibility of taking the place of that reactor, I might weigh it just to see, Mm -hmm. is it a bonus? But the shit that goes in my pack needs to go in my pack. And it doesn't matter if Jesus came down and told me not to take it. I know I need it. So it doesn't fucking matter what it weighs. It's got to go in my pack because I have to have it. That's experience, right? I mean, that's, and so I doubt, do you weigh anything? I, no, I can't do the math to figure out what it all weighs. <laughs> Freaking ounces to pounds, and yeah, it's too much work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many ounces go in a pound? And I got this much left over. It's like doing fractions. It ain't gonna happen. Well, yeah. I mean, it. It. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that, though. As far as, uh, it's not like when we're loading up shit in my pack. There's things I can take out. I mean, there's nothing in there as I'm loading it up, thinking, ah, oh, fuck, I really don't need that. I'm gonna leave that out. If it's in there, it's in there for a reason. Now, I will say at certain hunts, I'm going to bring extra, oh, I'll bring Luco tape, right? Because I'll tape up my feet sometimes. All right. That's about it. I mean, everything else, it's in there for a reason. So it is really inconsequential on what it weighs. I don't even want to fucking know because I need it and I can't get rid of it. So talking about it really does me no good. It's got to be in there. And you see that a lot online these days of guys weighing their stuff. And I'm not discrediting weighing your stuff at all. I'm just saying for for me, and it sounds like the other two gentlemen at the table here, if it's in there, it's in there. It's not coming out. Doesn't matter what it weighs. Um, I need it. I need it. Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't. Do you weigh your shit? No. When's the last time you have? I don't know. It's been a few years. Yeah, it's probably been. 10 for, for and me. And it's not been individually. It's just been like with a luggage scale, like, yeah. oh, my pack weighs this much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and again, I will look at the weight of something and check it if it's going to be a new possibility because it's a review and I got to weigh it to see because that's part of it. If it's lighter, then yeah, it's a bonus. But if it's better and it's not lighter, the weight's kind of secondary. If it's a better product, then it's going to go in whether it weighs less or more. Um, I think that um, people need to realize very rarely do you get to go down in weight and up in durability and quality in longevity. It just doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it does, but not very often. Anytime you're looking at new gear, if it weighs a decent amount, you're getting more long-term durability out of it for the most part. And I don't think you're going to ever get around that. You know, another thing for the pack, I mean, we talked about how Aaron and anybody else, the packing in above Timberline in the heat of the day when it's 90 degrees is a killer. I mean, I probably have more batteries than than typical people do because I'm walking up at two o'clock in the morning getting up there to where I need to be. And then I hunt all day long. So I'm walking out at night. So I, I use a lot of, I use a lot of batteries in regards to my headlamp. Yeah. So to me, a headlamp is instrumental where, you know, it'll say, Hey, this thing has 60 hours worth of battery life. Um, that's, 
I, I put that to the test, and I've I've really swore by certain headlamps that I used that uh, with the verbiage on there actually met, and I exceeded what they what they had on there. So I really like a good headlamp too. I'm not gonna bring it up because it's a competitor, but a competitor did a I think it was like a rebuttal podcast that one he and I did, and I don't know if you would believe this, but he said he doesn't believe. He doesn't bring a headlamp because he'll just <laughs> hike out. That was his. Why? I'm not fucking kidding. Now, how much any, does a headlamp weigh, really? I, like, I'm, come on now. You know what? Uh, you can get, even have that little Petzl Eli thing doesn't weigh anything. I had a guy. Um, he told me he doesn't bring a headlamp either. He just walks out by daylight, by by, by moonlight. Except the moon isn't always out, right? It's or not if always it's, or if it's fucking cloudy, full. It yeah. doesn't matter. And <laughs> but, also, sheep country, you don't you you're you're you're, you're still climbing. You're cliff, still and yeah, it's 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 not realistic. The shit that comes across my plate on email sometimes is amazing because the one thing I would say, the two things are for major for me is blood trailing in the dark and getting cliffed out. Mm-hmm. Cliff, getting cliffed out, uh, a higher lumen headlamp can save you some altitude from getting from dropping. It saves broken ankles and blood trailing. I don't know. It's not easy to blood trail in the dark, and I try not to ever do it. But if you get caught up in it, a good headlamp is, is handy to have. But, again, in really adverse conditions, even when you know where you're going, it can be difficult. When you don't know where you're going and it's dark, a headlamp is a, your savior. So. I mean, there's. I mean, I'll have my clients. I mean, if there's anybody that prolongs turning that light on, it's me because your eyes adjust, and as as, as the sun's going down, your eyes adjust, you adjust, and adjust, and I'll keep it for as long as I possibly can. And a lot of times, I do make it all the way back in the dark. But if I, but in sheep country, it's so many times it's not realistic. I, I would love to rely on sheep on, on the my my eyes adjusting. I'll have plants walking behind me. They turn theirs on right away just because it's dark. I bought this thing. I'm going to use it. Well, there's certain times you don't because it shadows a lot of the cliffy stuff. It shadows a lot of the rocks where you can't see behind. And it's just a shadow. So I try to not. I try to use the ambient light that's out there, but uh, then as soon as I get to a certain point, there's no choice. And if that makes me of a wuss and not as, you know, I'm not exercising my experience that I have because I carry a headlamp around, then so be it. But it's in my pack because I had to have it. I laughed when I heard that. But there, there's something in the military when you're talking about your eyes acclimating called sills where it's stop, look, listen, and smell. And a good example of that is when that sun goes down, once it does, and, and, and you're getting towards darkness, you take 15 minutes to stop, look, listen, and smell. One of the things that happens with that is your eyes acclimate to the dark. Mm-hmm. And it's like in the morning when you first, or, or in, excuse me, when you first go to, to bed, let's say, and you, if you if you don't look at your cell phone, turn your headlamp on, and you just sit by the tent, your vision gets better and better because your eyes are acclimating. That works to a certain extent, and it does help. And I agree with what Harold said 100%. I don't fuck around with that in the cliffs. There's no sills. I pop the headlamp on. I just do it. I mean, it's not. I I personally, like you said, in sheep country and mule deer country, you can get away like on a trail. You're not going to really need a headlamp, right? It common sense. But when you're dealing with really, really bad terrain, like can you imagine hiking out where our shortcut with no headlamp? We'd make it probably. Um We'd probably be, yeah, yeah, I was going to say four (laughs) times longer and we'd eat shit a lot. What's a headlamp weigh? Seven ounces? (laughs) Exactly. Fuck that. I'm bringing a headlamp. And the battery thing, um, which is kind of a known deal, I try to keep all my battery operated equipment to the same type of battery when I can. That's instrumental if you can. 
Um, so my headlamp, it runs double A's. A lot of them run triple A's, but my water pure, or I have a class, I use a stair pin, um, and that runs double A's. And so that way, if one runs out, I, you know, pull them out of the, the, the stirrup pin and throw them in my headlamp and it get me, you know, however much juice I got left. So if you can do that, mimic the batteries that carries, it saves you from carrying different goofy batteries in your, in your pack. And if you get in a deep shit situation, you can steal them out of something. Yeah. And if you got a lot of patience, it's okay to not have an extra light um, because, or, because you think about it, it's getting dark, my my headlamp's getting down, my flashlight's getting down, now i got to change batteries. So then you, you take it apart to change the batteries, and now you can't see because you don't have a light no more. <laughs> and so I'm over there trying to put my batteries in, and then I go to, it doesn't work, and then I'm trying to flip them around, can't remember where they were the first time, and I have an epileptic attack up there. And it's just, uh, so it's kind of nice for me anyways to have, I got a little thumb one. That just I push on it to help me put the batteries back in what I'm putting the batteries into. We use a Petzl E light. It's a okay, yeah, it's a half was. ounce or something. And I use it in my tent to save the battery life in my because I think that last set of batteries had two years. Um, is what that little fucker E-Lite, lasted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Shit's crazy. Man. It's just a little flat watch battery. We keep it in our bino harness because I mean I have had to hike out. I have to say with the E light, but in my tent I'll use that because it lasts longer and I'm not burning up the juice in my my big battery. And uh, you can read with it and cook with it. I mean, it, you're certainly not going to be spotlighting coons in the tree, but I mean it's enough to get by. And the same thing like you said is it, <laughs> when you have to pull your headlight out, your batteries out of your one, you're you're good. Um, <laughs> yeah. The it's uh, we're kind of going down all these things. I covered. A lot of the stuff I wanted to kind of hit a little bit on uh, merino wool and synthetic. Um, Here's I'm going to throw my opinions out, and then you guys will circle the wagon here. For me, um, I am a uh, believer in merino wool base layers. I like merino wool for that. After that, I'm not a huge fan of merino wool because it's heavy um, and it doesn't dry nearly as fast. So I actually go merino really like a 150 to 170 weight against my skin because it does dry pretty fast. And then I go fleece uh, synthetic after that layer. Um, There's nothing wrong if you're not backpack hunting. I don't have any issue running merino or wool for, you know, every layer if needed. But for a backpack hunt, after my base layer, I don't I don't run merino, and a lot of guys do that. And, and once merino gets wet, it takes forever to dry, and it is super heavy. So that's kind of the way I roll my my, my intermediate layers and everything else are, are fleece. But what do you? We we do the exact same thing. Um, I uh, I'm I'm a big believer in the merino wool, um, and they uh, I, mean, I got the I even take you know they got the V neck zipper and stuff like that, so you can air out a lot of stuff, and even got some of them have the armpits, but. After that, um, I, I use the synthetics and I use um, stuff that's going to dry quick, that's uh, wind resistant and still breathable, and that's really not merino. So um, I, uh, I, I, I layer the exact same way. So on the layers, uh, so people understand as far as getting their pack weight down, if you're, if you're backpacking in um, for 10, 12 days, it doesn't really matter for me. I generally carry an extra set of underwear and an extra set of socks. That's just cause I'll pull those stinky bastards off and hand wash them, throw my new set on every few days. I do the same thing with socks. The only pants I have are what I wear in. And I, I generally have some type of a synthetic t-shirt, merino wool, you know, like a merino t-shirt. Uh, and then I have a fleece hooded, uh, like I wear that core heavyweight 
uh, hoodie a lot from, or the Apex hoodie from Sitka. I have a puffy jacket and a rain jacket, rain pants. If it's kind of cold or whatever, I'll have um, like leggings or whatever you call them and long johns. That's it. That's all I bring. Uh-huh. Um, sheep hunting up there in Alaska, what I bring is uh, I just have the, the Sitka shorts, and then I wear the rain pants. They're heavier rain pants. I can't remember which one. Uh, Storm front? Uh, well, they got what they got rid of the, the, the dew point, mm-hmm. and they replaced it with one that's kind of in between their heavy and the dew point. Cloud burst? Uh, maybe it is a cloud burst. Yeah, that's what I wore with Frank and I this last week. So it, it sides this down the leg. So I'm from my waist down. I'm I'm prepared to set in that wet tundra. I'm prepared for rain. I'm prepared for everything. And, and when I'm backpacking in, I got to unzip from my hip all the way down to my ankle. So I'm getting plenty of ventilation, and uh, plus it keeps the hunters behind me, you know, at bay. Um, cause I'm sure it don't smell real good, you know, that all leaking out of there. So, um, but that's, that's what I use. I, I that's my, that's my full-time pants. Um, and then if it gets cold, then of course I'm wearing long underwear underneath that rain pants, but, uh, it's, it, it's, it, it compacts real tight. And if it's warm enough above Tim, like, cause again, where I'm in Alaska in August, a lot of times we're hunting in our shorts. Yeah. yeah. And then, well, of course, last two years, it's been snowing every single day and horrible and um and but you know i was also acclimated i mean i was set for that condition too i just wore long underwear underneath them and then kept my legs slipped up so and then up top do you just kind of what do you kind of for the for the for from from base layer up what do you got on up there uh yeah the merino wool and i got the i like the first lights uh it's got the hood on it mm-hmm. where uh sitka they also have one with the hood and a face mask involved also which now i'm kind of use that so that's my first layer. And my second layer, God, I, it's it's a combination of just a wool blend with a polyester flannel shirt that I get at uh, the secondhand stores, you know, Goodwill yeah. stores and stuff <laughs> like that. And you'll see that if you go on Jonas Alaska's, you know, his site. I'm just dressed. Um, I don't like like the typical guy, but it, it works good for me because it, it it's wind resistant and it dries in a millionth of a second and it's warm when it's wet. Yeah. Well, and that's, so that's that's the what key. I like about wool. Yeah, that's the key. And there is, um, without getting going down the fire spiral, down the shitter of the matching, if you decide not to match, you will save a lot of money when you're <laughs> buying your layering system. Yeah. If you if you just buy, I mean, and keep in mind, this comes from a guy, I don't pay for shit. I get everything pretty much for free. Frank, I don't think you pay for anything either, do you? Sometimes. <laughs> what, what's the last camel you bought? I don't know. You buy because you buy solids. I've been buying a lot of uh, like Prana stuff lately and yeah. non conformist yeah. types. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for hiking pants, it's pretty hard to beat a Prana Zion pant for us. That's what we use a lot for a hunting pant. I've probably killed in cool, cool, cool renegades. Yeah, and Prana Zions. I a lot of stuff in there. The the only pant. Well, the Timberline. I wear that Sitka Timberline a shitload. Um, it's got a padded ass and knees. Um, you, if you don't match, I would say you're probably dropping forty percent off of your <laughs> the price of yeah. You're going to drop followers, but you're going to drop probably forty to fifty percent off of your total dollar amount than you would if you tried to match because that shit, mm-hmm. it's expensive. And Do that icebreaker shirt I have, like you have a bunch of icebreaker stuff too. I got that on sale at REI like three or four years ago, super cheap. Like it was like 30 bucks. That's yeah. like a 200 um, Merino shirt yeah. or whatever. Yeah, you just got to shop around. I mean, that's the thing. I, I'm all for supporting hunting companies, but if you're on a budget, 
I would say don't match and, and buy good glass. Don't worry about matching as much. See, um, I'd, li- I'd like to wear shorts, but I don't know if I can pull off the shorts with the boots look. <laughs> I can't. My legs are still fucking wide. They're as wide as that bottle cap. Last year, that asshole, he's above me getting flagging me in, and I, I was – I was getting ready to go through Willow, so I, I, I pulled my pants off or rolled them up. You rolled them up. It was me and Steve looking. You know, all we could see, we just see his white oh, legs. He texted <laughs> right. me. He's like, put your pants down. You're scaring all the deer off. Uh, yeah, but, like a neon sign out there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about it. Um, if you buy Piranha Zions, well, you can probably get them for 50 bucks, right? Yeah, especially when they have sales. I've never even seen those. I've seen you. I mean, I never oh, put dude, a pair on. They're nice. Um, compare that to a hunting brand. You're looking at 129 to 189 This is for warmer weather. Mm-hmm. So... That's your pants, right? So let's say you've saved a hundred bucks uh, right there, and uh, then you go to your upper layer. Depending upon you know merino wise, you can buy if you don't mind matching neutral color merino. What's equivalent in a hunting company is one hundred and twenty nine to one hundred and sixty nine. You can get for forty to fifty bucks. Um, some of the stuff though, you do you know I, I I don't think you can beat that apex hoodie or apex pants for a stick bow guy because they're so quiet. Um, they're quieter than the Zion, so that's a big thing is noise, but you can also buy shit on sale. So you may be, you know, wearing a little ASAT, a little First Light, a little Sitka, um, and, and, but it's going to save you. I would say a layering system is going to cost you 2500 bucks. I bet you get it down to 1200 from top to bottom if you don't match. I would, I would think it's pretty... I would say it's pretty close. Well, you said you buy your shit at a secondhand store, so that could be yeah. a pretty, pretty fucking good example. Yeah. Just the shirt. Yeah. Um, but um, that, that I think, I mean, I've turned other people onto it too because it just, uh, it, 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 all it takes is a 10 mile hour wind for 10 minutes. Even the sun don't need to be out and it's, it's dry. Yeah. And when it is wet, it's warm. It's still warm. Yeah. I, I think you can probably tell with, with Frank and I what we, I've had Timberline pants from Zitka for years. I bought those, and those are ones I really like. And then when it's warmer weather, I've probably had five different types of pants on over the course, and it's different colored Prana Zions and mm-hmm. cool Renegade cargo pants. That's what I had on this last weekend. It's just because, I mean, I try to be fair to the people listening to us. Not everybody's going to be able to afford it, and I definitely 100% there is certain – uh, things that hunting companies sell that I that I uh, fully agree that it's going to be hard to beat. Um, uh, what's one of the things you wear a shitload from a hunting company for as an example? That beanie from First Light, the tag cuff beanie, the merino one. Yeah, that is one of the best beanies made. Um, I'd say like for me that core heavyweight hoodie. Um, what's cool about that is Patagonia and that thing are close to the same thing, except Patagonia hates predator hunting and Sitka doesn't so that's good um I the the rain gear wise I it's pretty hard to find really good non-hunting rain gear you're not going to save I guess what I'm getting at is I haven't found any cheap ways around good rain gear I don't know if you have no no <laughs> I mean how I got most of my stuff I don't want to sound like I'm a, a, a poor individual here but uh you know guiding some of these high-end hunters uh, on their sheep hunts it was a lot of the stuff I got is because when you're doing their group photo, I cramp their style. So he's like, "Hey, man, at least, <laughs> oh, damn. At least ungrateful least, bastards." Yeah, yeah you uh, put my put my uh, put my uh, you know Sitka coat on. Put my this you know this for the picture. You can take it back off later. So slowly but surely, um, I've gotten clothes that's uh, been given to me along with a lot of Bibles. I don't know what it is about. I've I've 
I've you need uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of my sense of humor or dirty yeah. jokes that I tell, but um, it's oh, uh, I, I get I get Bibles for for uh, for tips. That's awkward. What's the resale value on yeah. the Bible? No, yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, no, I mean, if you've got the money, by all means, support hunting companies. And like I said, there's going to be certain things you should buy or, or will be advantageous to spend from a from a hunting company. But there's going to be other things. If it's a choice between matching or getting your ass out west and going hunting, I mean, co- go to Idaho, not Colorado, but get, uh, you know, Get it where you get in where you can and, and, and buy what you can afford. Yeah, you're going to need that extra four or $500 for gas and a tag rather than uh, matching. Yeah, I would say so. And we, I've matched a little better this last year, but I still, I'm, I'm not quite fitting the bill. Frank, you were a little two-toned this last trip. Yeah. You had all three. Frank had First Light, Sitka, and Cryptic on. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so I had some Cryptic ring gear and First Light beanie, and I don't think I had any Sitka on. I had a Swazi. Oh yeah, Swazi. That's what it was. Yep. Yeah. I like the lightweight hoodie and the and the heavyweight hoodie from Sitka. Those are my f- favorite stuff I wear. Sometimes. Yeah, I wear the shit out of it. But that, that new Apex stuff from them is is um pretty. It's got the hood and you know they used to have the fanatic that had the hood, but that Apex is it's a it's just they have pants. It's it's super quiet stick bow hunting. It's pretty freaking hard to beat as far as I haven't tried their pants yet. Of course, I got to pay for everything, but they uh, um I, <laughs> if it works, I would pay for it. it it's just a quiet pant. You you mm-hmm. don't get the. Sh- when you when you walk so right. i don't know i i again i don't want to have to go down to my well if frank wasn't around it wouldn't be bad but i don't think i think my phone or my inreach went off where he said take put your put your pants back down that deer are running away because they are pretty white but um yeah <laughs> is there anything else we should add to this we're working on an hour and a half here no i'm good yeah we've talked about enough cool well harold you're going to alaska tomorrow when you come back uh, September 26th. So this year I won't be hunting, uh, any archery in lower 48, uh, except for, White except for whitetail. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, Frank and I, we just went scouting up North for mule deer and then we've got goat down by Cordova and, uh, then I got a goat tag here and then you got your elk tag right after that. And then, yeah, we got quite a bit of quite a bit of season ahead of us. Yeah, I'm filling my void. I'm going to Africa for two and a half weeks uh, as soon as I get back from Alaska. So cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting maybe an opportunity to hunt Cape Buffalo. So right now I'm working with Danny Klum over there, um, building me an arrow. I think we got it up to 940 grains. It's shooting good. Um, it's shooting slow. I mean, with the advantage of that is because I'm still kind of fast for 58. I can go down there and push the tip of that arrow <laughs> and get it to, <laughs> and run alongside of it and push it where it needs to go uh, to make sure I hit the bullseye. But um, at, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to it. They're going to let me spot and stock. I didn't want to visit Africa looking out a little two-inch by two-inch hole looking over water. I wanted to see Africa. I wanted to uh, glass and and get on a high point and see all kinds of animals. So not to say I'm not one set at a watering hole for one or two days, but it's mostly going to be a spot and stock deal. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, cool, cool, man. Well, good luck while you're up there. And, uh, you know, everybody, I appreciate everybody tuning in. All right. Thank Thank you. you.